So, as we go to scripture today, it is in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And Elisha said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And Elijah said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into the heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. And Elisha went over the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Becca, for reading that. We are at the end of the series on the life of Elijah. Um, so I one friend I was going to do this, and he's like, that's funny because there's nothing about like his early childhood or anything. Um, but we do know something about Elijah. He was from a mountainous region. Um, he dressed like a wild man, and that's about all as we, as from what we know from his early life. He was born into the northern kingdom of Israel. It will also be known as Ephraim later in the scripture. He, was, he came on the scene during a king named Ahab, who had said it was a small thing for him to operate in the evil of his father. And he, Elijah doesn't hear from the Lord. He heard from the Lord what everybody had heard from the Lord, that when they started worshiping idols, that God would take away the rain. So he prays earnestly. He has this directive from God. He's read it in the scriptures. Everybody else has read it from the scripture. That when they would start 
following the idols, and they had they instituted Baal worship in Israel that God would shut up the heavens. So Elijah prays, and it does not rain for three and a half years. Elijah has this amazing, uh, I think one of the amazing things about Elijah is how God provides for his physical needs. I call it, you know, McRavens, McWidows, and McAngels. Because God feeds Elijah uniquely in these different ways. You know, first it's with ravens. And I like to say McRavens because I like to think of like a raven like having like a sack of like McDonald's food for him. Because that helps me not think about how like, because it says like they brought him bread and they brought him meat. And ravens are carrion eaters. So I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you better make sure to cook that really well, Elijah. He, the, the spring dries up and he is, he is uh, then sent to a widow who God prepared to feed him as well. And she has just a jug of oil and a jar of flour. And God does a miracle and it doesn't run out. When Elijah is in the depths of depression, God himself cooks Elijah meals. He's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. That is Jesus Christ. I believe that is called a Christophany in the Old Testament. Um, and the angel of the Lord cooks for Elijah uh, cakes of bread on stones. God took care of Elijah. Elijah, when the widow's son dies, he is so moved by this, he lays down on, on the boy three times and the, life, and the boy's life is returned to him. The first time that has happened in the scriptures. After Elijah um, challenges the prophets of Baal and God answers by fire, Elijah runs to the nearest city. Jezebel, the king's wife, threatens his life and he runs away. He is in a period of deep depression that God heals him through. And last, um, last week we talked about two more miracles of his when two groups of soldiers, 50 each with a captain, so that's 51, so that's 102. And he sees them, they call him man of God. He's like, if I be a man of God, let fire fall from heaven. And last week I said, this is like, you know, the, the hero Captain Marvel's like, Shazam! And lightning falls from heaven and cooks 51 of them, kills them. And another 51 after that. And the third 51 actually rise up and honor him and honor the Lord more than just with their mouths, but with their hearts. And the, the king at that time, he ends up dying. Today we are at the end of the prophet's story. And I find it to be one of the most beautiful ends of any character in the scripture because he is taken to be with the Lord. He, his story really ends the way it began. So you don't know much about Elijah. He just comes down from the mountains. And now he's taken with the Lord. All he had in the mountains was the Lord. And now all he has at the end is the Lord. There's so much many points, points in between. We know this as the chariots of fire. Not so much the story, but really the phrase chariots of fire um, really has made its way into different areas. You know, we have that old spiritual swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. You know, that was written in a time where things weren't great in America, where certain group of human, human beings were being mistreated. And out of that, singing that the chariots would come take us home as well. The, the, uh, the term chariots of fire, we probably think about the movie The Chariots of Fire and that song. The movie was about the Olympian Eric Liddell, which is kind of fitting right now, because I mean, are the, are the Olympics over? I don't yeah. know. It's like, I, nobody cares, right? But anyway. It used to be a huge thing. When I was growing up, parties used to like give like a hamburger if America won a gold medal. And now everybody's like, 
Well, hopefully our, hopefully our Olympians don't make fun of America. That'd be nice. Um, Eric Lindell, he was, a, he was an Olympian, um, ran uh, short distances, sprinter. And um, in the movie and in real life, um, he had this kind of tension in his life. He was born to missionaries in China. During a time in China, they weren't exactly open. But he had a call on his life to be a missionary. But he was also an Olympian. He was also running. And his sister couldn't understand, and many people couldn't understand, why don't you just do away? Why, why do you care about the secular stuff of running in the Olympics? And there's a scene in the movie, and this happened in real life too, where he tells his sister that he's been approved by the mission board to go back, to go to China. And um, he's like, but I have, there's, I'll have to do a lot of running first. His sister can't understand this, and there's this awesome quote in the movie. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now the story of, of Eric Liddell doesn't mirror Elijah. I mean, he doesn't call down fire from heaven to roast the other competitors. <laughs> if that did happen, I'd probably tune in maybe for the Olympics. Um, he's not fed by birds or anything like that, but really the heart of life of Elijah was in the heart of Eric Liddell, which is that when I do something, I do it well, I do it to the glory of God, I feel his pleasure. Amen. Elijah runs into the area of despondency of depression because he was convinced that after Mount Carmel, everything would change around. And sometimes we pray, and we're like, God, why haven't you sent revival? We need, to be, we need to be satisfied with our own relationship with God, that God deals with people the way he deals with people. And to leave the results with God, that we do what we do for the glory and honor of God. When God was most eager, what God was most eager to do in Elijah was not all the amazing event type of stuff, but it was the still small voice. It's what Elijah had at the beginning and what he has at the end. He has God. You look at the beginning of Elijah's life, all he has is God, but he has joy that's unspeakable. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you always have what Elijah had. This is the great design of God from Genesis to Revelation. All of the Bible is really summed up in one name. It is Emmanuel, God with us. What is God doing from Genesis to Revelation? Emmanuel, God with us. And I'm so excited. This week is the last week of our Revelation study. I can't believe it's happening. It was only a six-week study last November. The study guide has morphed into above 100 pages if you include the six churches. And we're at the end. And the end, you know, you go through this such long process, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all these things, and you get to the end and you hear that he wipes every tear from there. That in the end, they will not need a light from the sun, they will not need the light of a lamp, but he will be their light. Amen. Emmanuel, God with us. Before I go into the scripture, I want to take note of the different personalities between Elijah and Elisha. And, you know, Lord knows what he's doing, but man, it is hard to keep the names straight, especially when you're preaching. So don't get on me if I mix up the names. They're very similar. Elisha and Elijah. They had very different personalities, even though Elisha was Elijah's um, disciple. Now, the idea behind discipleship, especially in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is being the representation of the prophet, the priest, the rabbi for the next generation. 
You are trying to emulate them in every thought, word, and deed, really. In fact, in the New Testament, it got to such a legalistic point of view that they had all these things in the Talmud that they needed to follow. In fact, there would be some disciples who would, um, like, every aspect of their of their master's life, they wanted to be there for that so that they could be the ma- their master for the new generation. But even with that said, there was a big difference between the personalities of these two. Elijah... He was so much more reserved. He Really, his ministry was really kind of hidden from the people. He'd come down from the mountain. He was hidden by the widow. Even when we get to this point right here, he is now going from where he lives to the different schools of ministry, the different seminaries, the school of the prophets, is what the scripture calls it, the school of the prophets, that he had started. But he doesn't live there. He has his one disciple that is Elisha. Elisha, on the other hand, his ministry is out amongst the people. He lives in Samaria. And, uh, and, and he just trusts God to protect him. There's this point where um, these people are coming to kill him. And his, and, his, um, and his servant is freaking out. He tells him, look again, more are with us than are with them. Um, there's a major difference in their um, temperaments and personalities. Today's vernacular, we probably say Elijah was more of an introvert. And Elisha was more of an extrovert. Um, you can say what you want. Basically, mainly those things are made up anyway. Um, probably people who put a lot of like stock in personality tests don't like me saying that. But as far as I'm concerned, they have the same rank as, you know, which Avenger are you? And it's always the Hulk for me because I answer those questions like the Hulk. And anyway, um, but that's the way we would kind of see today. I think that gives us a good idea of who Elijah and Elisha were. Verse 1 of chapter 2 spoils the rest of the chapter. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So it's a spoiler, you know, it doesn't believe in spoilers, tells us right away that at the end of this chapter, Elijah, he's going to heaven in a tornado. That's fantastic, it's amazing, it's awe-inspiring, of course. But it also is, is that Elijah is going home. Elijah is going home. Home, that's such a powerful. No matter what language it's in, home, casa, domicile, whatever language that word is in, it means so much bigger than human language can can convey. It should be a place of, of safety, of home, of belonging, of where I should be. In the New Testament, the New Testament word, the Koine Greek word for home is endomio, endomio. It means to be amongst one's own people in one's own country. You know what Shakespeare called heaven was the undiscovered country. And Elijah, he lived like a stranger in a strange world, in a strange country, but now he's going home. So I said, this week I'm trying to write this sermon, and I'm stopping every now and again because I'm like, this is what my heart longs for, to be with the Lord. I've, I've often thought about this. This is just, who knows what heaven's going to be like? No mind has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what the Lord has in store for those who love him. I know the most important thing. I will be with the one whom I loved and longed for, Jesus Christ. He will be Emmanuel. But I wonder what it will be like when I pass from this veil of tears, whether through the through the rapture or death, and I enter that country of my Lord. And I'm walking upon the streets of gold or upon the grass of the field in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. I bet I would say to myself, I'll say to myself, haven't I always lived here? Haven't I always lived here, except for that small portion spent in the Shadowlands? 
It's something amazing to look forward to. Earth wasn't Elijah's home. He was a citizen of a higher kingdom, and he was going home. It's the secret, unspoken desire of every child's of every child of God's heart is to be home. Second Corinthians five one through five. For we know that if this if the tent that that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For if this in this tent we groan, longing to be put put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For we, while we are still in this tent, we groan in our burden. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He has prepared for us for this very thing, is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are, we are away from the Lord. This is why the Christian, the believer, in any and every circumstance, no matter how hard, no matter how oppressive, or how wonderful, is a good courage, because we know that we are not home yet. So we can endure the struggle in the strange land. Elisha was Elijah's disciple. Elijah doesn't perform just a bunch of miracles and zip away. He leaves a godly legacy. So much of that is kind of like off-panel. At some point in time, he, he developed the school of the prophets. If you remember when Elijah was in depression, he was saying to the Lord, and I, only I, am the only one left. God had to straighten him out. Straighten him out. He says, I preserve 7,000 who have not kissed Baal. So Elijah, at some point in time, after taking Elisha as his disciple, has started the school of the prophets, and he has this, and he has this uh, disciple named Elisha, who will do twice the miracles he, he will do. He has left a godly legacy, and that is something each and every one of us, we need to be thinking about, no matter how old or how young. Are we leaving a godly legacy? Because this is not what we want to hear in America, what was said in the book of Judges. And there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, that's a scary thing for a nation. When you have a generation that rises that does not know what God had done, what the Lord has done for Israel, what God has done for us. You know, we curse Zoomers about being lazy and godless um, in our thinking. But of course, Generation X did the same to Generation Y. And the boomers did the same thing to Generation X. A better thing to ask, a better thing to think about, instead of thinking about how godless this generation is, is about how it got that way. Did a generation not teach the next generation to fear the Lord? Instead, we just curse them as if they just popped out of nowhere and they weren't, they weren't raised by a generation before them who was too, perhaps too selfish to pass on the glories of the Lord. May that never be said of us. We need to constantly be thinking, what legacy are we leaving behind? This includes teenagers as well. Are you producing something new? Are you discipling people? Because if you're a believer, you should have a disciple. We are to make disciples. Paul said, follow me as I follow, as I follow, as I follow Jesus Christ. That's the essence of discipleship. Follow me as we follow Jesus Christ. We read about prophets like Elisha and Elijah, and we can become disconnected. Like, God is probably not going to do a Mount Carmel kind of thing in your life, and he probably isn't. 
If you see greatness in the kingdom, however, as grand miracles, I'm going to go off the notes here. If you think greatness in the kingdom of God is what you see on TV with these huge crusades and miracles, then you are judging the way the world judges. Because the world judges that way. We see success in the world as what physical money that is made, numbers of people, that is the way the world judges. The way the Lord judges is he sees a guy like Gideon. Before Gideon does anything, he calls him mighty man of valor. God sees somebody like Elijah. Revival doesn't happen, but Elijah is somebody God loves and, 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 and loves. You know something interesting about Elijah and Elisha? Once again, we look at them and we're like, well, God will never use me like that. In a very real way, in a way according to Jesus Christ, you are greater than Elijah and Elisha, which is a crazy statement to make, but it's true. Because Jesus Christ said, there's none born of woman greater than John the Baptist. So, no other prophet. And by the way, John the Baptist doesn't actually perform miracles. He baptizes. But he says, there's none more born of woman greater than John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist went out in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus then continues it to say that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Because you know how God sees greatness? His closeness with Jesus Christ. Closeness with Jesus Christ. So if you are in God's kingdom, you are greater than Elijah. Jesus also, once again, Jesus says that the least in the kingdom is greater than he. And praying over this section of scripture and over the life of Elijah, I see three things that are just so evident in his life and should be evident in our life. One is to cling desperately. Two, love earnestly. And three, surrender holy. Cling desperately. In the first few verses here, we have Elijah telling Elisha to please stay here. He's going to go on alone. And Elijah, Elijah's not having it. He swears an oath here. You've seen in the other parts of Scripture. He kind of adds one more thing to it. You know, surely as the Lord lives, he says, and as you live, Elijah could be like, as the dog lives, I'm not leaving you. You better get through your head. I'm not going anywhere. It's like in Lord of the Rings when Frodo is convinced that if he stays with the fellowship, it'll just corrupt all of them. So he's going to go to Mordor alone. So he's like paddling out. And, and Sam's out there and Frodo's like, Sam, I'm going to Mordor alone. He's like, of course you are. And I'm coming with you. Elijah, he's like, I'm going alone, and Elisha's like, I know, and I'm coming with you. He's clinging desperately to the promises of God. Elisha knows that his master will be taken away that day. In fact, that's what the, the sons of the prophets come to him, and they're like, do you know that your master's taken away? He's like, I know. Shut up about it. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second about love earnestly. But he's clinging desperately because he knows after Elijah is gone, it's, it's his turn. And he's not so arrogant to think that he can do this in his own power. And so many young men and young women go to Bible college and that's what they think. A lot of them are not even believers today. They don't tremble before God's word. They think it's just kind of fun. You put things together and you get to be in front of people. Every Sunday, my prayer is, God, don't let me forget to tremble today. Because I'm, I'm sharing with you God's word, not my thoughts, not my opinions. This isn't, you know, deep thoughts with Pastor Jason Hour. This is God's word, so I pray, God, do not let me forget to tremble today. 
Eli- Elisha, he knows that what he can, what's about to happen, he cannot do in his own power. So he is clinging to Elijah for just an idea, a hope. Maybe he'll get the same kind of anointing and spirit of Eli- that Elijah has, so he can do what God wants him to do. The great question about this is. The great question of why Elijah asked him to stay is: Does Elijah is Elijah testing him, or is it just simply Elijah's personality that he wants to be alone? Both are supported through the scripture. We don't really know. Maybe he really does want him to stay back because he wants to do this alone, or maybe he's testing Elijah. Now we know from the scripture that um, Elijah is told Elijah is told the sons of the prophets that he's going to be taken away that day. Um, we know that Elisha knows. We don't know if Elijah knows that Elisha knows. Did you know that? Um, so we're not sure. It absolutely could be a test to see if he would, if he would just, if he would just stay where he's told to put, or if he would desire the things of God passionately, or if he would be like Esau who sold his inheritance for for a cup of soup. Or if he would value the things of God to, to tarry with his master until the very end. You know, the stories in scripture and history of any kind of story that I find most compelling are the ones of perseverance. When I see the painting of Washington crossing the Delaware, it stirs something. You may not know this, but like it was, it was expected amongst the gentlemen of, of war during that time that when you were boxed in, like, you were supposed to give up. You were supposed to surrender. So in that painting of, of Washington crossing the Delaware, he's sacrificing his good name. He's sacrificing his self-respect for the idea of a nation where people are their own and they only answer to the Lord and not to the king. Powerful, powerful. You know, perseverance. In the scripture, I think the most powerful stories for me personally that move me are those of perseverance, like Jacob, who would be named Israel where we get the name of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. Jacob, he's just Jacob, and he's, he's, in, a, he's in a tough position because his brother, whom he wronged, is bearing down on him, and he sees one night, he sees an angel, he doesn't know it's the angel of the Lord, and he grabs him, he holds on to him, and he wrestles until morning. I always love that story, because I think the, the angel was playing around with him, because at, the, at, at dawn, he touches his hip, it goes out, he could have done that, he could have done that to his head if he wanted um, so, he wants to see, where, where, where's Jacob at? It's kind of like with Elijah and Elisha. Where's Elisha at? Does he desire the anointing? Does he desire the spirit? Does he desire for Jacob? Does he desire the new name? Is he tired of being the heel grabber? And now he wants to be a father of a nation? Would he wrestle until morning and tell him, I won't let you go until you bless me? So many times in churches and in ministries, we're like, once it gets hard, we're, we're done. Well, now things are hard to be a Christian, and so many people who say that they are Christians have fallen away to so many ideologies and things that are not of the Lord. But where's the person who will wrestle until morning and cling and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. We cling desperately to the blessing because I know whom I have believed in. Amen. That is the very nature of discipleship. In Jesus' time, discipleship was was ironed out. There were certain customs, um, certain customs that were observed by the disciples. When Jesus says, "Follow me," and they drop everything, that was 
reestablished, pre-established by Elijah, in fact, um, when he was told to follow, well, he wasn't told, Elijah himself puts his mantle, his cloak, on Elisha, and Elisha then burns his, he was, he was, he was plowing a field with his ox, and um, the yoke and everything, he burns that, he cooks the ox on there, and they have a barbecue. In Jesus' time, you had Hebrew school, and there would be certain points in Hebrew school in which young men would be told, you're good. You can go, go learn a trade, do something. The rabbi in the Hebrew school would basically be telling them, you're not my disciple. You're not good enough to be my disciple. You can't be me for, another gener- for the new generation. So go learn fishing, learn to do carpentry. So Jesus, he goes around and he sees... Matthew, who's at the tax collector booth. Things didn't go great for Matthew that he's at the tax collector booth, by the way. They're hated among more than everybody else. He says, follow me. And Matthew drops everything he follows the Lord. Because he was saying, come be my disciple. Come be me for a new generation. The nature of discipleship is to cling desperately. They, they know, they knew what that meant Elijah is a disciple like that. He burns the yoke and kills the oxen and has a barbecue for the whole neighborhood. The neighbor, nature of discipleship in the Bible was to learn, not to just to learn the doctrine, but to be the rabbi, to be the, the prophet for the next generation. We are disciples of Christ. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. The encouragement we have in chapter 2 here is cling desperately. I will not leave you until you're taken as surely as the Lord lives, you live, I will not go. Cling desperately. Cling, cling desperately to mentors. Do you have a mentor? I don't care how old you are. Do you have a mentor in your life? And do you have people you're discipling? Cling to both. Cling to both. Cling to people in your life that God has led you to. Don't, don't write people off. Continue to pray. No matter how... No matter how distant it looks, like they're never going to get it, continue to pray, because you do not know what the hound of heaven is doing in their life. I shared in Sunday school this morning that many of us have loved ones who don't know the Lord today, who are living a life of sin, of licentiousness, of many things, and we're tempted to just kind of give up, or just kind of get numb. I think that's kind of the best word for it. We just kind of get numb about it. Like we have nothing left to give. But remember the story of the two lost sons? Now the, the, the really encouraging part about that story is they were two sons. They weren't two enemies, but they were two sons. So while they were wayward for a time, they would be brought back into the masters, into their father's happiness. Cling desperately to the people of your life. Cling desperately to the mission that God has given you to make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We all have a mission. You all have a place. You all have a purpose in your life. Cling to that mission. You know, there are people who say who who, who say that they're Christians, but they'll say, you know, proselytization, that's that's ministry, that's Evangelism that that is that is wrong is somehow sinful. I don't care what they say. I've been given a mission from God, and I'm not going to let that go, no matter how much the the nations strive in vain. Cling desperately in prayer. Cling, cling desperately in prayer and worship. In the times, the best of times to worship and to praise is when you do not feel like it. 
When we feel like it, we don't know whether or not it's an emotional experience, but the, the sweetest times of praise I've ever had is when I was so numb emotionally, and I chose to praise. I chose to praise. God did something amazing in my heart during those times. Cling desperately. Cling desperately to the word of the Lord. Peter said, when, when Jesus said, will you abandon me too to his disciples? Peter the apostle said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of life. Amen. Love earnestly. Verses uh, 5 through 8 is what I'll be going over here. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he, and he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, and as they and as they both were standing by the Jordan, love earnestly. It's interesting. He tells the uh, sons of the prophet, "Keep quiet." It's actually not interesting because we all know what that's like. I mean, have you ever lost somebody and you don't really want to talk about it? You don't really. It's like there's a time where the hurt is so near, you don't really want to go over it. That's what all that's about. Is Elisha loved Elijah earnestly as a spiritual father. When the school of the prophets near come near um, Elijah, they um, they uh, wanted the inside scoop from his disciple from Elisha, but Elisha didn't want to talk about it. Of course, he didn't. We are struck with sorrow. He really wanted to be chatty. To the school, Elijah was a teacher, but to Elisha. Elijah was a mentor and a father. You know, there is something that people will say in ministry that I, I just find disturbing. It's this, ministry would be great if it weren't for people. This is something burned out pastors will say out of a wounded spirit. At least I hope so, because ministry isn't ministry without people. And if you touch the heart of God, you can't help but love people. And that's just the truth. There's no such thing as a servant of God who doesn't love people. First John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's an interesting thing because sometimes we just spread this out right away. That Christians, we, we, we love the world. And we do love the world. We love our enemies. But there's a specific emphasis on loving those who are part of the body of Christ. And some people make their living in hating the body of Christ. That's disturbing. That's very, very disturbing. Because that shows that the love of God is not in them. They do not love their fellow and sister in Christ. So they're all hypocrites. What are you? I mean, that's the thing. People, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, we have tons of room for more. we got chairs in the back. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we do love to kind of point the finger. We are called not to point the finger, but to love earnestly. To love earnestly. There's a story in the scripture in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, there's a similar story. Ruth is a pagan Moabite who is married to a woman named Naomi's son. But, her, but Naomi's son, Ruth's husband, he dies. Naomi tries to shoo her away to marry somebody else so that she could be taken care of. But Ruth tells her mother-in-law, Do not urge me to leave you or to return 
from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The marks of the people of God is that we love each other earnestly. And that's what we see with Elisha and Elijah, is he loves him earnestly. He will not leave his side. It's like Ruth with Naomi, where you go, I will go. There's a quote that often gets attributed to Mother Teresa of Calcutta. It's actually from Dr. Kent, Kent um, Keith. And it says, people are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. Love them anyway. You know, Jesus said, if you only love those who love you, what is that to you? Everybody does that. The pagans do that. He's called us to love, specifically those in the kingdom of God, but also our enemies. It's easier said than done. It's easy to love the Taliban, because I don't interact with the Taliban. So I can pretend I love the Taliban, because I don't know anything about the Taliban, other than they, you know, the evil they do. It's harder for me to say that I love the person on the other side of the political aisle, especially this last year, right? It's hard to love the person who's calling you, you know, racist, sexist, homophobe, whatever other pejorative we might make up for things. It's hard to love those people. It's not like that, though. Love them anyway. If Jesus could forgive the very people who are pounding the nails into his hands, or pray for them not to have the sin uh, be credited to their account, can we not do that same thing? We are called to love earnestly. I want to quickly talk about the 50 soldiers and the 50 sons of the prophet. The uh, prophets. The chapter has an interesting correlation with the previous chapter in 2 Kings. In chapter 1, we have uh, three groups of soldiers, 50 each. Two of, two of those groups are burned in fire from heaven. Um, one of the groups, who has a wise captain, is spared. In this chapter, we have 50 sons of the prophets who watch from a distance. This is a callback to, remember when God told Elijah that there was 7,000 that he had preserved who had not kissed the veils? Sometimes we feel like, okay, nobody else, nobody else is worshiping God, nobody else is serving God, everybody's compromising. God preserves probably a lot more than 7,000 in America who have not kissed the veils. And that they are also regimented, just like the armies of Israel is what we see right here with the 50 and the 50, that God has an army that he is rising up. Talk about love earnestly. And when Jesus was asked what the most important commandment is, he responded with the Shema Yisrael, something Israelites still will repeat today. And in it, it's from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. Then he quotes from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And so many people think that there's a big break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament yes, when he talks about yeah. the most important commandment. So, the most important commandment is to love, and we never get past that. You never get so important that you are not commanded to love earnestly. I think of so many times when I've been in a restaurant with a supposed man or woman of God, and I, I just wanted to crawl out of my skin with how terrible they were treating the waitstaff. You have to take them aside. It's like, you know that they're... You know, you know that there's somebody who Christ died for, right? 
And they're not just somebody you step on. I've unfortunately been been around people who talk a great game, but it's why Paul wrote the Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Once again, when Jesus asked about the most important commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's so many like weird things that happen in Christianity throughout all the ages. It's not just in our current age. Almost from the very beginning. I mean, look even in your, in your Bible, in the Corinthian church. Many people are like, man, I want a church that's like a, like a New Testament church. And I'm like, have you read the New Testament, though? <laughs> because the Corinthian church, it wasn't going great. In fact, Paul's almost beside himself... Okay, there, there's a man in their congregation who's having an affair with his stepmom, and they're glad about it. It's going nuts. They despise the poor, and they make a mockery out of them in their service. If I have not love, I'm just a clanging gong or a noisy symbol. I gain nothing. I have nothing to give if I have not love. We never get away from Loving earnestly. Verse 8 contains the last miracle of Elijah. Like Moses, he parts the sea. When Moses did it, it was to flee from the land of slavery into the land of freedom. Elijah is about to leave this foreign land that he was a stranger in and finally going into his true home. Verses 9 through 11, I think it exemplifies a person who is wholly surrendered in Elisha. Elijah realizes that Elijah isn't going anywhere. So he asks him what he wants. I'm going to go ahead and just read verse 9 myself here. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. This is very much like Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Solomon is asked by God, what would he do for him? Amazing thing. I mean, we, we see this so rarely in the scriptures, where God will say to a person, ask me. And God is serious. In fact, God told him, you could have asked for riches, you could have asked for fame. But because Solomon asked for wisdom, God gives him all of it. Amen. Elisha, when he's asked this, he asked for a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah. Double portion, it's a very interesting thing. It is very much connected to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 21 talks about inheritance rights. Later on, Elijah will call Elijah, Elisha will call Elijah his father. And there was something in inheritance rights about a double portion. And um, it's much easier to understand as far as land goes than it goes with other things. So for the land, Israel, that was an inheritance from the Lord. So the land could not be taken from one family to another. It could not really be sold. In fact, that was the year of Jubilee. Everything went back because the land was given by the Lord, not from any other thing. So when somebody, when a father died, his land then would be split up amongst his heirs and there'd be a there'd be an equal there'd be an equal share. But the oldest son would receive a double portion. So there'd be an extra portion. He'd get that double portion. 
course, you can go into other things here. So Elijah is Elisha is using this kind of inheritance talk of, to talk about getting a, a double portion of the blessing of the spirit that was on Elijah. And very much this tracks. Interesting enough, though, according to some accounting of the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, Elisha actually also did double the miracles. So it's kind of an interesting question. So was he asking for double, like like 200% of Elijah's anointing? Or is he asking for the inheritance of a double portion? And the answer is yes. He got kind of asked for one, but he gets the other two. He gets the double portion of God's anointing on Elijah. Elijah calls this a hard thing. No wonder, because actually, Elijah can't do this. He did not anoint himself. God anointed Elijah. Who anoints kings, prophets, and others? Who gives them a portion of the Spirit's power? Is it not the Lord? This is a hard thing. But Elijah, he knows God. This is the thing you find out about prophets and, uh, prophets in the Old Testament. There comes to a point where they've spent so much time in the presence of God, they know God's mind on things. So Elijah is not actually told by God that if Elisha stays with him, he'll get it, but he knows God. He knows a God who rewards persistence. Yeah. He, knows a, he knows of a God who, when somebody values the things of God, that person is then blessed. To a sadder extent, we see this with Jonah. You know what Jonah says after the people repent? He's like, I know you do this. He wasn't told. In fact, he doesn't tell them, repent. He says, in a few days, this place is going down. But when God saves him, he's like, I know you do this. And he's upset with God about it. Elijah's not upset, but he knows what God does to those who earnestly seek him and are called according to his, uh, called according to his word. That he works all things to the good of those who, are, who love him and are called according, according to his word. Verse 11. It's funny, in my notes I just put verse 11 here because I don't even know how to like summarize this. In verse 11 is the chariots of fire. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and forces of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. I'm going to go on to verse 12. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Such a dramatic event. One moment they are talking, and the next a chariot of fire and horses of fire pick Elijah up and take him into a tornado up into heaven. Verse 11 is Elijah's life. Elijah's life summed up in dramatic fashion. The business with the drought and the cloud, like a man's hand, very much like a storm, like a tornado. Here, there is a tornado. Three times does Elijah call forth fire from heaven. A chariot and horses of fire take Elijah up to heaven, kind of an inverse of what had happened in his life. Most importantly, when I started this message, I mentioned how Elijah started out having nothing and no one. He now has schools, of prophets and a, and a disciple, he also has the he also has his heart's desire. The most important thing he has the Lord. Elisha experiences such sweet sorrow at this, and he just proclaims in verse twelve. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, "My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen." 
thought that was such an interesting phrase, don't you? Because when Elisha, when it comes to his time to die, there's a king who comes over to him, he leaps over, and he says, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. So I was doing some research, and, and it really seemed like nobody has any like deep theological meaning into it, other than just, when you thought of, when kings thought of their power and their authority, their military might, they judged by the horses and their chariots. You'll see this throughout the Old Testament. And uh, what, what the commentators were saying, basically, e- Elisha here and the king later, is saying that the prophets are more important than the horses and the chariots to Israel's safety and protection and dominate, dominance on the field of battle. I'm always just struck by how personal this is. He says, my father, my father. He loved him earnestly. He clung to him desperately. And now he realizes he needs to be wholly surrendered to a new calling in his life. One might say that he is that he is someone unprepared for this new calling, but that's not the truth. He just he realizes his own limitations. In in a verse thirteen, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak from Elijah that had fallen from him, and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the waters, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. Elisha's first miracle was Elijah's last miracle. And Elijah was his last miracle before he goes home, Elisha, it's his first miracle before this new calling comes upon him. He has completely surrendered to what God wants to do in his life. In many of your translations, it may say instead of cloak, it says mantle. That's a great translation. Because that's what it was. It was the mantle of the office of the prophet. When Elijah commissions Elisha, what he does, he finds him plowing the field, and he takes off his cloak, and he puts it on him. And Elisha, Elisha, realizes immediately what this means and asks if he can go kiss his mother and father goodbye. So now he has taken, Elijah is gone. No longer is there somebody else to say, well, that's his problem. It's one thing I, I, I would say in my previous church when I was the associate pastor is uh, me and Beck would be talking, I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's Pastor Terry's problem. That was my problem. Now I have the mantle on as lead pastor of an assembly Elisha, he's totally committed to what God has for him. Initially, he says, the God of Elijah. He doesn't use that vernacular after this. It's almost kind of like, I'm now stepping into the calling that God has on my life. Amen. Maybe you're not called in the ministry today. Actually, all of you are called in the ministry because if we are believers, we are God's priests in this world. And then I equip you for the work of the ministry, but you do ministry. You have a calling on your life. Are you committed to that calling? Or are you still trying to have one foot plowing the fields and one foot in the ministry? Have you burned the yoke and, and ate the oxen? Or are you still or have you have you done that? Or are you still trying to plow the field with those? Are you ready for the mantle that God has to put on you? It's surrendering to a call, but more importantly, surrendering to a relationship. Elijah hasn't just committed himself to a not new occupation. He has surrendered himself wholly to a call and to a relationship. 
He starts off his ministry with saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he crosses the sea that God parts, he has crossed into he has crossed from disciple now into prophet. Worship team, you can come up at this point. The rest of the chapter has some very interesting things that happen here, and sometime I will preach just on those. But we have Elisha being being um, giving the giving the uh, kind of a right hand of fellowship by the school of the prophets as a new prophet. They, in fact, they say, maybe God just put him somewhere else. Let's go find him. And Elisha is like, no, no, he's not coming back. And they, they, they badger him enough where he's like, okay. And they come back. He's like, didn't I tell you? I mean, he's, he, he's really gone. He's really gone. And then um, they're in an area, by the way, in which uh, the previous kings in Bethel, <clears throat> there, the previous kings were... Um, setting up idol worship, calf worship, in fact. And people had heard about what had happened to Elijah. So when they see Elisha, it says some youths. Now think of this as young men around 16, not like 10-year-olds. And uh, they, they, they see Elisha, and they, they, they tell him, Go up, Baldy! I like the story more and more as I lose more and more hair. <laughs> so, uh, gang... Think of this as like a street gang, by the way. They're not just like 10-year-olds who are making fun of the prophet. It's like a street gang. And when they say go up, they're like, you died too. Because that, that would be their mindset, right? That he had died or just go away. And so Elisha curses them. And some of you are already laughing because you know two she-bears come out and they maul those kids. So don't call me Baldy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, let's, take, let's go back. He's on the bank of the Jordan. Elijah has been taken away. We're all on the bank of the Jordan at that precipice of what we are going to do, the ministries that God has given to us. And I don't care if you've been called in the ministry or not, you have a ministry. And when I was going over this, I was saying to myself, well, is this about Elisha or Elijah? Because this series is supposed to be on Elijah, not Elisha. But these three things permeated Elijah's life. These three things permeate mine and your life. They should. To cling desperately desperately to the promises of God. What promises of God have grown cold in your life that you are not believing anymore? Cling desperately to them. Cling, desperate, cling desperately in prayer. Jesus asked his disciples, could you not tarry with me but one hour? He says, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. So many of us, how often do you spend in prayer? How often do you get away from things and you can pray any way you like? I'm not going to put I'm not going to put any law on this. How often do you tarry and cling to God in prayer, cling on to the promises of God? Do you love earnestly? This last year has tested this more than any other. Hasn't it? Friends, family, people you don't even know on the internet calling you all kinds of names. <laughs> you've had this out, you've had this opportunity. Am I going to love earnestly even during this time? Do the people in my life know that I love them earnestly? When it, was, when it becomes hard, when it becomes almost impossible to love those who hate me, to bless those who persecute me. And then to surrender wholly. Surrender is probably one of the hardest things. You know, there used to be a song we sang in church, I surrender all, I surrender all. That's not our last song, is it? I'm just kidding. Um, all to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. 
I'm not the first person to say this, but if we, if we sang truth in churches, we might sing, I surrender some, I surrender some, all to Jesus, things I don't really care about, I surrender some. Are we going to be like Elisha putting on the mantle of the prophet? I have now gone past where I can go back. Or like Elijah, who stands up to a king and tells him, not until I give the word is it going to rain. And when the king calls him the troubler of Israel, he says, I'm not the troubler of Israel, you're the troubler of Israel. They'd be wholly committed. We're going to be ending this service with our last song and then the benediction. But the thing for us to be thinking about, the thing for us to be asking the Holy Spirit, search me, find me, is the areas that we have let go of that God wants us to cling to. It is the areas in our life where our love has grown cold, where he wants to stoke the fires of our affection once again. And then also the areas that we have not surrendered to him. There's no area that God does not look at and say, mine. Sometimes we're going to say, God, stay out of this business. Stay out of my money. Stay out of my relationships. But there's no area that God does not look at who saw the number all and does not say, mine. Worship team, would you please lead us in our final song?